when the village is sleeping there's only one light do you know where you are stepping through the doorway what a sign it is creaking we see your lost soul with our wandering is creeping there's only one light and a chill in the air we promise you stories for one night only come closer toward us lend us your ear if you dare Well, hello there, friend. Come on in. Take a look around. When you've finished having a look, why not come warm yourself by the fire? We promise we won't bite. We might even tell you a story. Or two. Maybe offer you a biscuit? Or two. This week, we've got some very fancy pistachio biscottis, and our coffee machine has finally started working again. Success. Mm. Now, where were we? Ah, oh. yes. In 1919, a committee including a spiritualist, a viscountess, a mind reader, a Scotland Yard detective, and a coroner attended a seance held in a small flat in London. Each member of the group had been instructed to bring with them a small personal item. Before the medium arrived, the objects were placed into a black drawstring bag, which was then locked inside a wooden box. At the stroke of midnight, a smartly dressed woman entered the room. The lower half of her face was covered in a thin black veil. She began the evening with an act of clairvoyance. The medium placed the locked box on her lap and while the committee watched carefully, she began to not only describe the items, but to say who each one belonged to. She stated that one of the objects was a ring belonging to the deceased son of the spiritualist, and even read out the faded inscription to the group. Next, she produced a spirit. She instructed the members to tie her to a chair and dim the lights. Slowly, she began to fall into a trance as a luminous mist materialized behind her. Most members agreed it was the size of a small book or calling card. One, however, insisted it was the form of an old woman. The form drifted about the room as the group watched in rapt silence. It appeared to pass directly through the medium before evaporating through the opposite wall. Was it a genuine glimpse of a world beyond our own? The committee was divided. And while you may not be familiar with most of its members, you have almost certainly heard of the spiritualist 
who was convinced of this medium's validity, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This ghostly apparition was not a visitor from the other side, however, but one of the medium's assistants. They were a talented acrobat who, while dressed in an ensemble made entirely from black tights, scaled the building and entered the room through a window after the group had already searched the area. The medium later told the group that their ghost was a piece of gauze that the acrobatic assistant had removed from their pocket and waved around the room. The medium and her team then repeated their demonstration before an even larger committee, including the original five, to show how easy it was to replicate these ghostly occurrences. And this is where it gets interesting. Unlike his fellow committee members, who went away aggravated at being fooled, Doyle insisted that while the latest demonstration was a trick, there was no proof that the first seance was not genuine. Now his team were baffled. The frauds had just outed themselves, yet this intelligent and logical man refused to discount the existence of ghosts. Unlike the others, this wasn't Doyle's first experience with the paranormal. He already knew that many mediums were frauds, using people's grief and desperation to make a quick buck. But Doyle had also seen many genuine apparitions in his spiritualist investigations. He had even spoken to his own son from beyond the grave. So while everyone else dismissed this demonstration as nothing more than a hoax, Doyle chose to draw on his many years of experience and focus on the clairvoyant aspect of the evening. While the ghost may have been faked, the medium's knowledge and the atmosphere of the room was undeniable. Ask anyone to name a famous detective, and chances are they'll mention Sherlock Holmes. The genius and his loyal doctor have caught the heart of multiple generations with their thrilling adventures in Victorian England. While many know the name Arthur Conan Doyle, he is generally only remembered as the author of these truly marvellous tales. There is a lot more to Doyle, however, than just his detective. He was a doctor, a keen traveller, an amateur botanist, a golfer and cricketer, ophthalmologist, and, perhaps most interesting of all, a spiritualist. Born on the 22nd of May, 1859, at 11 Picardy Place in Edinburgh, Arthur was the second of seven children. His early life was tough, having to grow up in poverty with an alcoholic father and overworked mother. He was sent to a private Catholic school in England with the help of wealthy uncles. Finding it medieval in both education and punishment, he soon rejected Christianity. He had always been a logical child, full of questions, finding solace in explanation. It's not all that surprising then that growing up in the world-renowned capital of medicine, Edinburgh-born Doyle trained to become a doctor. Thriving in this study, 
Doyle left university with three bachelor degrees, writing his dissertation in neurosyphilis. He joined multiple expeditions as a young doctor, allowing him to travel the world with several renowned explorers of the time. In early 1891, Doyle moved to Vienna to study ophthalmology, the treatment of eye disorders. Fascinated by the complexities of the human eye, he threw himself into his studies, often staying up all night leafing through textbooks. While the subject was thrilling to the logical man, he found it too difficult to not only learn a new branch of medicine, but also translate every German text used on the course. Eventually, he left the programme, spending the next two months taking his wife Louisa ice skating and drinking with friends. Fans of the logical and scientific Sherlock Holmes were shocked at Doyle's staunch belief in spiritualism and mediums. But it's not that strange when you remember that Doyle was a doctor and an agnostic. He rejected Catholicism after struggling to believe in a god he could not see. As a doctor, he often worked on cadavers who looked as if they had fallen into a deep sleep, but when an autopsy was performed, the organs were black and decaying. Doyle had always been convinced by the evidence of his own eyes. If he could see or touch something, then it had to be real. Theatre is all about directing the eye. Almost all mediums of the time used theatrical techniques to supposedly prove their validity. From spirit photographs to ectoplasm, the spiritualist community was well known for producing spectacles that had to be seen to be believed. Many believe that Arthur Conan Doyle became a spiritualist after attending the seance where he first spoke to his son Kingsley, who had died from pneumonia after being wounded in the Battle of the Somme. In reality, Doyle had been attending seances, participating in telepathy experiments and visiting mediums for years by the time he spoke to the spirit of his son in a darkened room. In 1889, he became a founding member of the Hampshire Society for Psychical Research. In 1893, he joined the London-based Society for Psychical Research. And in 1894, he joined Sir Sidney Scott and Frank Podmore in a search for poltergeists in Devon. As the tragedies of war began to devastate the population, the British public became more and more open to this new belief system, desperate for any message from beyond the grave. The more seances Doyle attended, the more he believed, noting that each medium had their own distinct style. His second wife, Jean, became a self-proclaimed medium and purveyor of automatic writing. At their Sussex home, she often channeled a personal spirit guide called Phineas, who regularly predicted global catastrophe. Phineas also dictated when the Doyles should move house or travel. Following the almost overnight success of the Sherlock Holmes stories, famously published in the Strand magazine, 
Doyle was able to leave his struggling medical career to write full-time. The detective's complex cases were a way for Doyle to document all the obscure little facts he'd picked up over the years. For example, Holmes was particularly knowledgeable about natural poisons. This was because Doyle took a course at the Royal Botanical Garden in Edinburgh when he was 18. While he wrote several novels in different genres, as well as a book on the Boer War and two books on spiritualism, Doyle was never able to escape the self-proclaimed Sherlockians. Finally killing off his beloved character at the picturesque and savage Reichenbach Falls, Doyle received death threats from outraged fans who staged protests in mourning dress on the streets of London and demanded he resurrect their favourite man. His own mother pressured him endlessly until he finally gave in and wrote several more tales. It seems that the Tumblr generation actually existed far before the internet. As the years passed, Doyle's popularity only grew, and as a respected author, sportsman and political campaigner, the public and the media treated him with the utmost respect. No one seemed bothered by his more outlandish beliefs. He was seen as a man of the utmost intelligence, invited to give numerous lectures on not just literature, but science and spiritualism too. His public image was to be tested in 1917, when two young girls from Yorkshire claimed to have photographed fairies at the bottom of their garden. Mystified by these images of the Cottingley fairies, Doyle interpreted them as clear and visible evidence of psychic phenomena. It's not all that surprising that Doyle was so convinced by these images, when you remember that he sat for several spirit portraits during his life, claiming many showed the face of his son, Kingsley. Doyle believed what he could see, and in those now infamous photographs, he saw fairies. Sadly, he saw them because they were there. At least, the paper drawings of them were. Elsie Wright and Frances Griffiths were cousins, often found playing by the stream in Wright's garden, much to the annoyance of their mothers when they came home wet and muddy. Claiming to have seen fairies there many times before, Elsie borrowed her father's camera one misty day and captured several photographs of these small, winged creatures. Her father saw them for what they were, but her mother, a member of the Theosophical Society, entered them into an exhibition attended by Edward Gardner, a man desperate to believe in other worlds. Showing them to numerous friends and a photographer, Gardner became more and more excited at people's positive reactions, eventually sending the images to his friend at the spiritualist magazine, Light. The editors of Light knew Doyle well. He never had been able to resist a supernatural image. To say Doyle was excited is putting it lightly. He took the photographs to the Strand, writing an article on the existence of fairies. 
In this piece, he declared to all that the recognition of their existence will jolt the material 20th century mind out of its heavy ruts in the mud and will make it admit that there is a glamour and mystery to life. As you can imagine, the journalists of the time didn't pull any punches. Doyle was ridiculed, with many skeptics denouncing the images immediately. Many years later, long after Doyle had died, the cousins finally admitted to the photographs being faked. Elsie had copied illustrations of dancing girls from a book and drew wings on them. The girls said that they had then cut out the cardboard figures and supported them with hat pins, disposing of their props in the stream once the photographs had been taken. While very embarrassing, this event didn't do anything to dampen Doyle's popularity. In fact, it actually led to an increase in book sales. After all, any publicity is good publicity. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's infamous friendship with magician Harry Houdini is often forgotten. Doyle and Houdini were an unusual pair. One was very much the bluff Scottish Victorian gentleman, educated at a Catholic private school, while the other was a self-made Hungarian immigrant who had spent most of his life in the entertainment industry. The men bonded over a shared logging to believe in spirits. Doyle wanted to prove that science could extend long after we die. Houdini simply wanted to communicate with his beloved mother, who had died years earlier. Houdini knew far too much about the tricks used on stage to be as easily convinced by mediums as his friend. Early in his career, before he found fame as an escape artist, Houdini and his wife Bess were not above using their own theatrical skills to perform seances on the vaudeville circuit to put food on the table. In his pursuit to find a legitimate psychic talent, Houdini began a public campaign to expose the fraudulent mediums he found along the way, who he described as human leeches. A little hypocritical, certainly, but well-intentioned. Tensions rose as Houdini denounced mediums that Doyle himself insisted were genuine. Their friendship was irreparably damaged after Houdini attended a seance at the Doyle's house, where Jean claimed to be channeling the spirit of Houdini's beloved mother. Although he was a skeptic, Houdini did believe in the afterlife and desperately wanted to give the Doyles the benefit of the doubt. By the time Jean had penned 15 sheets of paper with the spiritualist technique of automatic writing she claimed had come from Cecilia Weiss, Houdini was convinced that he was witnessing a fraud. Although he left without saying anything, Houdini knew he had not been hearing from his mother. Cecilia was married to a rabbi and would have never greeted her son by making the sign of the cross. As an immigrant from Hungary, his mother had a very limited grasp of English, but now in death, she was supposedly writing fluent letters to her son, saying things like, I am almost overwhelmed by this joy. 
This sounded nothing like his mother, and Houdini resented them for it. By the spring of 1923, the pair were sending savage letters to the New York Times about each other, which were published for all to read. While praising him as the bravest man in our generation, Doyle condemned Houdini for being biased and hungry for publicity. Houdini retaliated by saying, there is nothing that Sir Arthur will believe that surprises me. When Houdini died from a burst appendix in 1926, the pair were still arguing bitterly over Houdini's latest expose. After his death, his widow Bess held a seance each Halloween, hoping that her husband might make contact. Despite their scepticism, Houdini and Bess promised each other that whoever died first would try to contact the other from the other side. He and Bess devised a secret message, a code phrase that would be used. Sadly, he was always a no-show. In 1936, she gave up, declaring that 10 years is long enough to wait for any man. Many mediums had tried to contact Houdini, even conducting seances over his grave, but none were able to repeat the Houdini's secret phrase. And what was this mysterious message that no one could guess? Believe. In a case of life being stranger than fiction, Doyle helped exonerate not one, but two men who had been sentenced to life in prison for crimes they did not commit. The miraculous plots of the Holmes novels weren't coincidence, after all. The first was George Idaji, accused of sending numerous threatening letters and sneaking into neighbouring farms in the middle of the night to stab horses, killing several. Upon reading about the case, Doyle became interested and travelled to meet Idaji to see if he could draw out any information. After arriving late to their meeting, Doyle stepped in the foyer, watching him read a newspaper, noting that he held it mere centimetres from his eyes, squinting fiercely. Later speaking to the court, Doyle said, The idea of such a man scouring fields at night and assaulting cattle while avoiding the watching police was ludicrous. Several years later, Doyle was again captivated by yet another injustice. The case of Oscar Slater. Marion Gilchrist was a wealthy 82-year-old woman who lived in the West End of Glasgow. When her maid, Helen Lambie, rose early to make Marion's morning cup of tea, she was horrified to find the woman's lifeless body bludgeoned to death in the living room. The flat seemed to have been burgled. Papers were strewn across the floor, furniture tipped up. Although there was a lot of precious jewellery in the flat, only one item was missing. A diamond brooch. Oscar Slater was a German Jew who lived near Gilchrist, who only five days after her murder had attempted to pawn a diamond brooch and travelled to America. It wasn't looking so great for him. As it turns out, a number of inconsistencies were found at his trial. First of all, 
the brooch he attempted to pawn actually belonged to his girlfriend. Secondly, friends told the court that his trip to America had been planned months before Gilchrist's death. Although several defence witnesses provided Slater with an alibi, the prejudiced judge encouraged the jury to find Oscar guilty. The case came to the attention of Doyle, who then used his own extraordinary powers of deduction to conduct his own investigation. During a secret inquiry in 1914, Detective Lieutenant John Thompson Trench provided previously withheld evidence from the original case, which stated that the family of Gilchrist all suspected the murder was committed by one of them. With Doyle's help, on November 8, 1927, the Scottish Secretary authorised Slater's release. He left Peterhead Prison with £6,000, but sadly, his name was never cleared. In his later life, Doyle embarked on a world tour, giving a series of lectures on spiritualism in the UK, Australia, Canada and the USA. As you can imagine, the mere presence of such a famous author drew huge crowds of people who often didn't know what he would actually be talking about. This often led to disappointed crowds, but Doyle was happier than he had been in years. He felt it was his duty, as someone with influence, to show the public how important spiritualism was. In his autobiography, The Wanderings of a Spiritualist, he said, I have always held that people insist too much upon direct proof. What direct proof have we of most of the great facts of science? We simply take the word of those who have examined. How many of us have, for example, seen the rings of Saturn? We are assured that they are there and we accept the assurance. The more he travelled, speaking to people from all walks of life about his beliefs, the more he realised that spiritualist literature wasn't reaching the general public, and the only exposure most had to it were the humiliating exposés in newspapers. Doyle was convinced that while his lectures were reaching more people than ever, there was much more that could be done. During the bitterly cold February of 1925, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle officially opened the psychic bookshop in Abbey House. Close to his London flat, the shop was the first of its kind in the UK, housing their own publishing imprint, library, and even a museum in the basement. Using these publishing resources, Doyle had two books on spiritualism made and published widely. Mary Doyle, Arthur's daughter, described the shop as an information hub where people could not only buy the literature but also get invaluable information on the best mediums in their area. The museum had a vast collection including spirit photography, newspaper clippings of famous mediums, trance paintings, objects that had appeared in seances. It even housed a couple of the original Cottingley Fairy photos. Sadly, the shop never made a profit. It was opened and paid for using the money Doyle made from his stories, and after only a few years, it was closed permanently. 
Doyle continued his lectures, traveling to Paris in 1925 for the International Spiritualist Congress, then to London, South Africa, Kenya, Holland, and Scandinavia. When they returned to London, Jean found her husband on the grass outside, desperately clutching his chest. Exhausted and aging, he had suffered a catastrophic heart attack. Ignoring the advice of his doctors, he insisted on attending the Armistice Day ceremony he was due to give a talk at the following evening. After this, he spent the next three weeks in bed. Slowly deteriorating, Doyle spent his remaining days at home with Jean. It's easy to imagine these final moments one of little stress. After all, he knew that his spirit would be able to visit the friends who were willing to attend seances. Even more comforting must have been his wife Jean's ability to channel the dead. He would never be alone or unreachable. He would simply be elsewhere. On a cold spring evening, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, surrounded by family, clutched his wife's hand and with a smile uttered his last words. You are wonderful. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle often said that if he was only remembered for the Sherlock Holmes stories, he had wasted his life. His long-standing disdain for his creation stopped him from seeing the joy it brought to so many. Anyone who has tried to walk down Baker Street during the summer holidays knows all too well how Doyle's legacy has lived on. Speedies went from a humble local cafe to an internationally recognised business overnight after being featured on the BBC's adaption of Sherlock. If you find yourself in Edinburgh needing spiritual counselling or a private reading, the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Centre is a must visit. It's run by members of the Edinburgh Association of Spiritualists, the second oldest spiritualist organisation in Scotland. Not only is it a gorgeous Victorian townhouse suspended in time, the centre has a friendly and enthusiastic team of people led by a woman who claims to have prevented an old colleague from dying in a car crash after having a violent premonition. The Scottish capital also has its own nods to the author, including a statue of Sherlock on Picardy Place and the Conan Doyle pub on York Place. This man, who was so terrified to be remembered for only one, albeit big, part of his life, seems to have forgotten what an interesting and multifaceted person he was in his own right. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was a doctor, a traveller, a researcher, a scientist. He played on the same cricket team as J.M. Barry, discussed the supernatural with Rudyard Kipling, he once judged a bodybuilding competition, and helped to popularise skiing amongst British gentlemen after living in Switzerland. He wrote for numerous magazines, both mainstream and spiritualist. He ran for Parliament, twice, solved real-life crimes, and never, ever stopped trying to prove the existence of spirits.
There are many great mediums, many great psychical researchers, investigators of all sorts. All that I can do is to be a gramophone on the subject, to go about, to meet people face to face, to try and make them understand that this thing is not the foolish thing which is so often represented, but that it really is a great philosophy and, as I think, the basis of all religious improvement in the future of the human race. I suppose I've said with more mediums, good and bad and indifferent than perhaps any living being. Anyhow, a larger variety because I've traveled so much all over the world and wherever I've gone, either in Australia, America, or South Africa, uh, the best that there was to be had in that direction uh, was put at my disposal. Therefore, when people come along and contradict me, who have had no experience at all, read little and perhaps never been to a seance, uh, you can imagine that I don't take their opposition very seriously. When I talk on this subject, I'm not talking about what I believe. I'm not talking about what I think. I'm talking about what I know. There's an enormous difference, believe me, between believing a thing and knowing a thing. I'm talking about things that I've handled, that I've seen, that I've heard with my own ears. And I always mind you in the presence of witnesses. That's your new it's nickname. I've decided if you listen to us, then you are Wanderers now. Oh, I like Wanderers. That's cute, cute isn't it? With an A, not an O, obviously. Yeah, Wanderers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's that or the Hello Eyes. <laughs> <laughs> That's weird, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that is weird, not gonna lie. Um, so, you probably just listened to, uh, well, if you're listening to this, you've listened to the clip of Arthur Conan Doyle speaking, um, possibly for the first time, and so have I. I have literally not heard it, and actually just before we started recording this, I played it, and oh man. Yeah, Jasper I've... kind of lost his mind. I've heard Arthur Conan Doyle <laughs> uh, speak quite a few times, uh, and I really enjoy his voice, but we were chatting about how... He, he looks how he sounds and not yeah. many people look how they sound but he he sounds like a portly gentleman <laughs> with, with like a walrus moustache yeah. oh man I hope yeah. you all got as much joy out of that as I did I needed that oh I need that Just kind of your day around. it did yeah it's, it's a been, a, been a long ass day and uh, he he made it better he's a good man <laughs> I love I love Sir Arthur Conan Doyle my boy. He is your boy. And you got some extra stuff he to is. say about him as well. Yeah, so like I um I grew up reading the Sherlock Holmes stories like 
ideally sitting by fires like a Victorian mm. child. But um, yeah, I've always loved them. I was one of those girls on Tumblr who was obsessed <laughs> with the Sherlock fandom. It was all very embarrassing. Um, but yeah, so Sherlock's always been a huge part of my life until, you know, Moffat ruined it. Um, we're not going into that round. No, today. we're not. Not today. No. Uh, we're trying to keep the shit talk shorter, so let's not even <laughs> go down that road. Um, but yeah, so uh, loving the stories as a kid and finding like comfort in them, to be able to see all the other things he's done is amazing. Because not a lot of people know about his spiritualism, about all the stuff he did. Like I didn't know until researching this podcast that he judged a bodybuilding competition. Who knew? He did what? I mean, you talk about it in your bit, Jasper, so clearly it shows you haven't done your bit yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was a sportsman, he travelled the world, he did all this mad stuff. I was researching, so I know a lot about him, but not that. Not that he judged a bodybuilding competition. <laughs> he was a boxer, he did loads of crazy stuff. Um, and it, it makes me really sad and also really makes me laugh the fact that he always said if after he died he was only remembered for Sherlock that he'd wasted his life. Because <laughs> it's really sad, but also, sorry Arthur. <laughs> but that's how it is. Oh dear. Oh he was dear. a very interesting man. Mm. Um, and as well as a recommendation for this week, um, I really want to recommend the Drunk History channel. Um, so, Drunk History, if you don't know, is it's actually American now as well, but it originally was British comedians getting really drunk and then telling a historical tale. And because they're drunk, often the facts aren't quite right. <laughs> it's often a lot funnier than the history actually is. Um, but drunk, well, I'll, uh, I'll link the YouTube channels on our website, and we now have a page up on our website of our recommendations. They work very hard on it. Uh, so have a little look. But yeah, there's an amazing video from Drunk History about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, and sorry, so Drunk History basically, while you've got the comedians telling these stories, they get in actors, like mostly quite well-known actors, to act out these parts. But they lip-sync, so you have the comedian's voice, which is very funny, when the voice is very different to the character. Um, so in the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, it's about one of the cases that he uh, investigated in real life and he's played by Bradley Walsh famous for uh, the chase and many other things um, and I you know it's great uh, and then the other one is um, famous for Doctor Who now as well huh? famous for Doctor Who now as well uh, he'll always be famous for the chase in my heart <laughs> he is very good on Doctor Who too <laughs> um, and yeah the other uh, video is of the Cottingley Fairy hoax um, and fantastically, the two girls, Elsie and Frances, are played by Catherine Tate. Um, and, oh, I, remember, I never remember his name. Who's the guy who plays Gavin in Gavin Stacey? Matthew... Horn? James Horn? No, he no, is Matthew. James Corden. James Corden, Matthew Horn. Yeah. yeah. Matthew Horn plays with Frances. <laughs> looks very good in a wig I must say <laughs> um, but yeah so I, I highly recommend the drunk history uh, videos they're great anyway but especially the Arthur Conan Doyle ones if you like Shakespeare as well um there's a theatre company called Shitface Shakespeare. They come yes. to the Fringe and we see them every year. Obviously, we couldn't see them this year because the Fringe didn't go ahead because Miss Rowan has ruined all our lives. Um, 
but they do a similar thing where, I, I mean, they get pissed during, I mean, it's called Shitface Shakespeare. They literally <laughs> get one cast member absolutely twatted. Um, yeah, like, staircase, just like, off their fucking face. And they drink more as the night goes on, and the audience gets to, like, join in, and it, it's so much fun. It's only ever one member of the cast. It's it's iconic. They, they have someone who um, has to sort of try and keep the show going along and some years i've i've seen that person have to like like fireman lift the like the the drunk actor off the stage because like like i've seen years where like they can recite entire soliloquies but they cannot go off on the right side of the stage um so look them up because they do a similar thing with the plots of various Shakespeare plays where they get really drunk and talk them out and act them out themselves and it's fantastic. As I recall in one there's lots of beardy men kissing. I don't really know (laughs) what's happening but they are excellent so recommend looking them up. Yeah, when theatre eventually comes back, definitely mm-hmm. uh, definitely try and see a show. I also want to do a special mention as well to the first time Jasper and I saw Shitface Shakespeare. Um, and it's always in the same um, building in the Fringe every year. I can't remember what the hall's called. It's the one near the um, uni. Can you hear me? I can hear you, yeah. Sorry, we're having some problems with the Crystal Ball collection. Connection? Connection. Connection. there we go. Are we back? Yes, we're back. Connection. I'm at the Crystal Ball. Um, yeah, every year Shipmate Shakespeare is in um, the same building. It's like, is it Usher Hall? I think it is Usher. No, it's not Usher no, Hall. No, it's not Usher Hall. No, it's a different hall. <laughs> it's a hall in Edinburgh. <laughs> um, but yeah, you've got like um, loads of seating that's like really steep. Um, so you're all like, there's no leg room, or your knees are up by your boobs, <laughs> and it's a whole thing. Um, and the first year that Jasper and I went to see Shipmate Shakespeare, we were like, obviously very like tightly squeezed into these chairs i know what you're gonna say you know what i'm gonna say (laughs) next to us two fucking poshos um living their best lives got out like a cheese board and two port glasses and had like port and cheese at shakespeare (laughs) and to this day like i've never seen anyone living a better life than these two people it was amazing so like proper good. glasses as well, not like plastic glasses. No, 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 like, like, like proper yeah. glasses. Yeah. It was, it was incredible. They actually, that was like, they'd up, they, they'd upgraded by the time I saw them again. Because when I first saw them, they were still at like the, the underbelly. Um, oh, okay. In yeah. the, the uni square. I thought you meant the posh people. Oh, no, not, no. I've never seen them. <laughs> they were absolutely tourists. Um... <laughs> No, the, the first year I saw them was, um, oh, many moons ago when I was, like, 18. Um, <laughs> when I was a baby, when I first came up to Edinburgh, and that was, that was, I can't even remember the play that they were doing, but it was phenomenal. What, what was the play we saw last year? Was it Hamlet? I don't know. I don't know Shakespeare. I think, I think last year was I Hamlet. wasn't Hamlet the year, the first time, because... Isn't Hamlet with the skull? Yeah. Because I think the first gym we saw it together, the guy who was really drunk smashed the skull off the stage. Oh my god, he did! An audience member. And he was yelling about Pikachu because one of the other cast members was dressed in yellow. 
And I'm not, I'm not actually going to repeat because I've just remembered what he said. I can't remember what the phrase was, but tell me after. I, I will tell you after. Like, I will say basically anything on air, but I feel like this w might actually offend Too someone. Much. So I'm, I'm not actually going to say it. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely go and see them. I feel like we've probably rambled enough. Um, but I am working on that book rec list. And you'll see if you go onto our page, there is now a little story for it. Um, and the first one I put up was one that I indulged in the other day and bought um, called Murder Maps Crime Scenes Revisited and it basically, they're murder maps of um, all of the sort of murder capital cities of the world so there's, there's all sorts and they basically run through like some of the worst historical murders there's also a really really interesting bit at the beginning on like phrenology and like the the birth of fingerprinting and that kind of stuff because right. um, didn't they used to like measure criminals heads mm. and mm -hmm. if it was a certain like width or something you were more evil yeah they were convinced as well that like you could tell if someone was like stupid because they'd look more like an animal oh. like like your facial features would like yeah. resemble an animal which like i've never but there met are so anyone many animals. well yeah that for one <laughs> but also i've never met anyone and thought like you know those people who get like injections to make them look like a cat that's the only kind of <laughs> yeah. person i can imagine that looks like that i mean this is gonna sound horrendous because people always think i'm a bitch when i say this but like michael rosen looks like a rodent <laughs> Like, he does. I'm sorry, like, he's a genius, but he looks like a rodent. So in that case, like, that doesn't mean he's stupid, he's fiercely intelligent. I mean, rats are but, smart. Like, yeah. So, like, in that case, I get it. But it entirely depends what animal you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it absolutely does. And yeah. also, it, oh, it, it, you know, like, animals aren't lesser than people. And they're not less intelligent. They have a different form of intelligence. It's it's just it's yeah the whole phrenology thing. The whole idea that you can tell anything about someone from what they look like or you know their handwriting or anything. Yeah. Someone I know, their part Charlie, Charlie's partner. Charlie is a lovely human being who's probably never going to listen to this. Anyway, Charlie's partner is currently. Um, studying I don't know if it's a master's I'm actually not sure but uh, it's to do with notes written in the margins of books oh, I think you told me this yeah, yeah really so cool. they're having to study like handwriting and stuff that's right. uh, but but like old handwriting where people are, like making up words and it's, it sounds amazing I, I need to ask them about it more um, but yeah it's amazing there's lots of pictures of dead bodies in this book I'm not actually gonna lie um, I haven't had a chance to sit down and read it because I don't have a chance to do anything these days except work. Um, I feel you, kid. I yeah. feel you. But it looks super interesting. It's by Thames and Hudson. Um, and yeah, oh, it actually, I didn't realise it has a time frame on it. It's 1811 to 1911, so it covers that century. Ooh, which good times. Well, yeah. Mm. Um, <laughs> so who? Yeah, okay, it's interesting. Um, which I, I suppose must have been like a very formative time for what we think of as sort of uh, the evolution of 
modern criminology, I want to say, probably. Yeah, I would say so. Anyway, it's, it's super interesting, really cool. Um, don't buy it if you don't like seeing black and white old photos of dead people. Just gonna put it out there. Um, yeah, if you don't like that, don't ever buy um, Beyond the Black Veil, which is an incredible book full of pictures of post-mortem photography. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. But like, even me, and I have a very strong stomach for this kind of shit. Mm-hmm. I got, I read it in one sitting, <laughs> and about three quarters of the way through, I was like, oh no. <laughs> it's like Surgeon's Hall, like you can be in Surgeon's Hall for like max oh. an hour and a half. Yeah. And then I just hit a point where I'm like, I need to leave I can up. only look at so many diseased ball sacks before yes. I need to leave. Like you hit a quota, <laughs> and then you're like, nah, <laughs> no more. There is some really cool section. stuff. I can't in there. deal with eye horror, so I always have oh. to like run through that. What? Book. What? The, the, to be honest, the only thing that really got me about being in Surgeons Hall Museum, which, if you don't know Edinburgh, it is the the surgery museum in Edinburgh, um, and there it's is amazing. lots of pickled people parts. Um, but they also say that fast five times. No, <laughs> say it fast five yeah, times with my with my braces in. <laughs> Hell no. Your teeth fly out Literally. like a coffin torpedo. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Um, but yeah, they have a bit on like kids and yeah. yeah, like children's illnesses and there's like a child, a really small child skeleton, but it's not set up like skeletons usually are. It's like laid flat. And Ma- um, Meg has a bat which is laid out, a bat skeleton, which is laid out in the same way. So I'm like stood in this museum, surrounded by like diseased and cut up and like, you know, shriveled lungs and spleens and all this. And then just on the wall, there's just a tiny skeleton that's just been like laid out like an Ikea flat pack furniture. And I just was like looking at it like, this is horrible. part the, the like history oh, of dentistry no, no, no. bit upstairs oh mm. if you have any kind of fear of dentists which i actually don't but i've Mm-mm. like i can't 
I can't, it's just, oh, the stuff that they wanted to stick in people's mouths. No. Anyway, we have been talking for far longer than we were gonna, because we said we were gonna keep it quick. And we've not, but here we are. Yeah, um, we never really do anymore, do we? No. But, um, but yeah, we hope you enjoyed. Um, mm -hmm. This was a fun one. And if you haven't ever read any Sherlock Holmes, I really do implore you to. Um, I know. But, um, but yeah, they are amazing. And that was they really mean stand the test of time. Mouthing that um, I've never read Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's not a visual medium. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, like, there's no shade, but they are really great stories, and they're fun, and they're interesting, mm -hmm. and if you can read them by an open fire, you're winning. And also, if you're done with Sherlock, but you want to watch more, there's an amazing series from, like, the 70s or something, which is one of the original series that they did, and it is phenomenal and it's classic Sherlock, Dear Stalker Hat, like the actor just, I can't remember his name but like he just is Sherlock and it's its phenomenal. Anyway we're gonna love ya and leave ya on this chilly Edinburgh evening. Well enjoy the rest of your November and get ready because it is Christmas time! Christmas, yeah! Which we need to sort out. Yeah, well, yeah, well. That's, that's future Megan Jasper's problem. That, yep, yeah, it's not for tonight. Anyway, nope. <laughs> stay safe, wear your masks, don't cough stay on anyone. No, just don't do that anyway. I mean, yeah, that's not necessarily advice for just now, that's just general advice. That's rude. Mm. And do a random act of kindness. Don't mm. tell anyone about it, don't shout about it on social media, just do something nice for a stranger. Mm. Mm-hmm. That isn't coughing on them. Don't do that. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Stop talking about coughing on people. <laughs> you want to say it or shall I? I'll say it. Right, my friends. Stay spooky. Bye. Bye. Wandering Eye Curios is brought to you by myself, Jasper Chanter, and my co-host, Meg James. The podcast is scripted and performed by both of us and produced by me. Music is scored and performed by Amy Marianne, with lyrics by myself. Our intro song, For Better or Worse, is sung by us. Find us on Instagram at WanderingEyeCurios and over on Twitter at WanderingEyePod. Stay spooky, friends. Until next time. of life being stranger than fiction, Doyle helped exonerate not one, but two men had sentenced to life in prison.